Part Three of the History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Three by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shortly after the appearance of the Swedish king before Ingolstadt, the wounded Tilly, after experiencing the caprice of unstable fortune, terminated his career within the walls of that town. Conquered by the superior generalship of Gustavus Adolphus, he lost, at the close of his days, all the laurels of his earlier victories, and appeased by a series of misfortunes the demands of justice and the avenging manes of Magdeburg. In his death, the imperial army and that of the League sustained an irreparable loss. The Roman Catholic religion was deprived of its most zealous defender, and Maximilian of Bavaria of the most faithful of his servants, who sealed his fidelity by his death, and even in his dying moments fulfilled the duties of a general. His last message to the elector was an urgent advice to take possession of Ratisbon in order to maintain the command of the Danube and to keep open the communication with Bohemia. With the confidence, which was the natural fruit of so many victories, Gustavus Adolphus commenced the siege of Ingolstadt, hoping to gain the town by the fury of his first assault. But the strength of its fortifications and the bravery of its garrison presented obstacles greater than any he had to encounter since the Battle of Brettenfeld, and the walls of Ingolstadt were near putting an end to his career. By reconnoitering the works, a twenty-four-pounder killed his horse under him, and he fell to the ground, while almost immediately afterward another ball struck his favorite, the young Margrave of Baden, by his side. With perfect self-possession, the king rose and quieted the fears of his troops by immediately mounting another horse. The occupation of Ratisbon by the Bavarians, who, by the advice of Tilly, had surprised the town by stratagem and placed it in a strong garrison, quickly changed the king's plan of operations. He had flattered himself with the hope of gaining this town, which favored the Protestant cause, and to find in it an ally as devoted to him as Nuremberg, Augsburg, and Frankfurt. Its seizure by the Bavarians seemed to postpone for a long time the fulfillment of his favorite project of making himself master of the Danube and cutting off his adversary's supplies from Bohemia. He suddenly raised the siege of Ingolstadt, before which he had wasted both his time and his troops, and penetrated into the interior of Bavaria in order to draw the elector into that quarter for the defense of his territories, and thus to strip the Danube of its defenders. The whole country, as far as Munich, now lay open to the conqueror. Mosburg, Landshut, and the whole territory of Freisingen submitted. Nothing could resist his arms. But if he met with no regular force to oppose his progress, he had to contend against a still more implacable enemy in the heart of every Bavarian, religious fanaticism. Soldiers who did not believe in the Pope were, in this country, a new and unheard-of phenomenon. The blind zeal of the priests represented them to the peasantry as monsters, the children of hell, and their leader as Antichrist. No wonder, then, if they thought themselves released from all ties of nature and humanity towards this brood of Satan, and justified in committing the most savage atrocities upon them. Woe to the Swedish soldier who fell into their hands. All the torments which inventive malice could devise were exercised upon these unhappy victims. And the sight of their mangled bodies exasperated the army to a fearful retaliation. Gustavus Adolphus alone, 
sullied the luster of his heroic character by no act of revenge, and the aversion which the Bavarians felt towards his religion, far from making him depart from the obligations of humanity towards that unfortunate people, seemed to impose upon him the stricter duty to honor his religion by a more constant clemency. The approach of the king spread terror and consternation in the capital, which, stripped of its defenders, and abandoned by its principal inhabitants, placed all its hopes in the magnanimity of the conqueror. By an unconditional and voluntary surrender, it hoped to disarm his vengeance, and sent deputies even to Freisingen to lay at his feet the keys of the city. Strongly as the king might have been tempted by the inhumanity of the Bavarians and the hostility of their sovereign to make a dreadful use of the rights of victory, pressed as he was by the Germans to avenge the fate of Magdeburg on the capital of its destroyer, the great prince scorned this mean revenge, and the very helplessness of his enemies disarmed his severity. Contented with the more noble triumph of conducting the palatine Frederick with the pomp of a victor into the very palace of the prince who had been the chief instrument of his ruin, and the usurper of his territories, he heightened the brilliancy of his triumphal entry by the brighter splendor of moderation and clemency. The king found in Munich only a forsaken palace, for the elector's treasures had been transported to Werfen. The magnificence of the building astonished him, and he asked the guide who showed the apartments who was the architect. No other, replied he, than the elector himself. I wish, said the king, I had this architect to send to Stockholm. That, he was answered, the architect will take care to prevent. When the arsenal was examined, they found nothing but carriages stripped of their cannon. The latter had been so artfully concealed under the floor that no traces of them remained, but for the treachery of a workman the deceit would not have been detected. Rise up from the dead, said the king, and come to judgment. The floor was pulled up, and a hundred and forty pieces of cannon discovered, some of extraordinary caliber, which had been principally taken in the Palatinate and Bohemia. A treasure of thirty thousand gold ducats, concealed in one of the largest, completed the pleasure which the king received from this valuable acquisition. A far more welcome spectacle still would have been the Bavarian army itself, for his march into the heart of Bavaria had been undertaken chiefly with the view of luring them from their entrenchments. In this expectation he was disappointed. No enemy appeared, no entreaties, however urgent, on the part of his subjects could induce the elector to risk the remainder of his army to the chances of a battle. Shut up in Ratisbon, he awaited the reinforcements which Wallenstein was bringing from Bohemia, and endeavored in the meantime to amuse his enemy and keep him active by reviving the negotiation for a neutrality. But the king's distrust, too often and too justly excited by his previous conduct, frustrated this design, and the intentional delay of Wallenstein abandoned Bavaria to the Swedes. Thus far had Gustavus advanced from victory to victory, without meeting an enemy able to cope with him. A part of Bavaria and Swabia, the bishoprics of Franconia, the lower palatinate, and the archbishopric of Mentz lay conquered in his rear. An uninterrupted career of conquest had conducted him to the threshold of Austria, and the most brilliant success had fully justified the plan of operations which he had formed after the Battle of Brettenfeld. If he had not succeeded to his wish in promoting a confederacy among the Protestant states, he had at least disarmed or weakened the League carried on the war chiefly at its expense, lessened the emperor's resources, emboldened the weaker states, 
and while he had laid under contribution the allies of the emperor, forced a way through their territories into Austria itself. Where arms were unavailing, the greatest service was rendered by the friendship of the free cities, whose affections he had gained by the double ties of policy and religion, and as long as he should maintain his superiority in the field, he might reckon on everything from their zeal. By his conquests on the Rhine, the Spaniards were cut off from the lower Palatinate, even if the state of war in the Netherlands left them at liberty to interfere with the affairs of Germany. The Duke of Lorraine, too, after his unfortunate campaign, had been glad to adopt the neutrality. Even the numerous garrisons he had left behind him in his progress through Germany had not diminished his army, and fresh and vigorous as when he first began his march, he now stood in the center of Bavaria, determined and prepared to carry the war into the heart of Austria. While Gustavus Adolphus thus maintained his superiority within the empire, fortune, in another quarter, had been no less favorable to his ally, the elector of Saxony. By the arrangement concerted between these princes at Hall, after the Battle of Leipzig, the conquest of Bohemia was entrusted to the elector of Saxony, while the king reserved for himself the attack upon the territories of the League. The first fruits which the elector reaped from the Battle of Breitenfeld was the reconquest of Leipzig, which was shortly followed by the expulsion of the Austrian garrisons from the entire circle. Reinforced by the troops who deserted to him from the hostile garrisons, the Saxon general Arnheim marched towards Lusatia, which had been overrun by an imperial general, Rudolf von Tiefenbach, in order to chastise the elector for embracing the cause of the enemy. He had already commenced in this weakly defended province the usual course of devastation, taking several towns and terrified Dresden itself by his approach, when his destructive progress was suddenly stopped by an express mandate from the emperor to spare the possessions of the king of Saxony. Ferdinand had perceived too late the errors of that policy which reduced the elector of Saxony to extremities, and forcibly driven this powerful monarch into an alliance with Sweden. By moderation, equally ill-timed, he now wished to repair, if possible, the consequences of his haughtiness, and thus committed a second error in endeavoring to repair the first. To deprive his enemy of so powerful an ally, he had opened, through the intervention of Spain, a negotiation with the elector, and in order to facilitate an accommodation, Tiefenbach was ordered immediately to retire from Saxony. But these concessions of the emperor, far from producing the desired effect, only revealed to the elector the embarrassment of his adversary and his own importance, and emboldened him the more to prosecute the advantages he had already obtained. How could he, moreover, without becoming chargeable with the most shameful ingratitude, abandon an ally to whom he had given the most solemn assurances of fidelity, and to whom he was indebted for the preservation of his dominions and even of his electoral dignity? The Saxon army, now relieved from the necessity of marching into Lusatia, advanced towards Bohemia, where a combination of favorable circumstances seemed to ensure them an easy victory. In this kingdom, the first scene of this fatal war, the flames of dissension still smoldered beneath the ashes, while the discontent of the inhabitants was fomented by daily acts of oppression and tyranny. On every side, this unfortunate country showed signs of a mournful change. Whole districts had changed their proprietors, and groaned under the hated yoke of Roman Catholic masters, whom the favor of the emperor and the Jesuits 
had enriched with the plunder and possessions of the exiled Protestants. Others, taking advantage themselves of the general distress, had purchased at a low rate the confiscated estates. The blood of the most eminent champions of liberty had been shed upon the scaffold, and such as by a timely flight avoided that fate, were wandering in misery far from their native land, while the obsequious slaves of depotism enjoyed their patrimony. Still more insupportable than the oppression of these petty tyrants was the restraint of conscience, which was imposed without distinction on all the Protestants of that kingdom. No external danger, no opposition on the part of the nation, however steadfast, not even the fearful lessons of past experience, could check in the Jesuits the rage of proselytism. Where fair means were ineffectual, recourse was had to military force to bring the deluded wanderers within the pale of the church. The inhabitants of Joachimsal, on the frontiers between Bohemia and Meissen, were the chief sufferers from this violence. Two imperial commissaries, accompanied by as many Jesuits and supported by fifteen musketeers, made their appearance in this peaceful valley to preach the gospel to the heretics. Where the rhetoric of the former was ineffectual, the forcibly quartering the latter upon the houses and threats of banishments and fines were tried. But on this occasion the good cause prevailed, and the bold resistance of this small district compelled the emperor disgracefully to recall his mandate of conversion. The example of the court had, however, afforded a precedent to the Roman Catholics of the empire, and seemed to justify every act of oppression which their insolence tempted them to wreak upon the Protestants. It is not surprising, then, if this persecuted party was favorable to a revolution, and saw with pleasure their deliverers on the frontiers. The Saxon army was already on its march towards Prague, the imperial garrisons everywhere retired before them. Schlockenau, Tetschen, Ossig, Leitmeritz soon fell into the enemy's hands, and every Roman Catholic place was abandoned to plunder. Consternation seized all the papists of the empire, and conscious of the outrages which they themselves had committed on the Protestants, they did not venture to abide the vengeful arrival of a Protestant army. All the Roman Catholics, who had anything to lose, fled hastily from the country to the capital, which again they presently abandoned. Prague was unprepared for an attack, and was too weakly garrisoned to sustain a long siege. Too late had the Emperor resolved to dispatch Field Marshal Tiefenbach to the defense of this capital. Before the imperial orders could reach the headquarters of that general in Silesia, the Saxons were already close to Prague, the Protestant inhabitants of which showed little zeal, while the weakness of the garrison left no room to hope a long resistance. In this fearful state of embarrassment, the Roman Catholics of Prague looked for security to Wallenstein, who now lived in that city as a private individual. But far from lending his military experience and the weight of his name towards its defense, he seized the favorable opportunity to satiate his thirst for revenge. If he did not actually invite the Saxons to Prague, at least his conduct facilitated its capture. Though unprepared, the town might still hold out until succors could arrive, and an imperial colonel, Count Meridas, showed serious intentions of undertaking its defense. But without command and authority, and having no support but his own zeal and courage, he did not dare to venture upon such a step without the advice of a superior. He therefore consulted the Duke of Friedland, whose approbation might supply the want of authority from the Emperor, 
and to whom the Bohemian generals were referred by an expressed edict of the court in the last extremity. He, however, artfully excused himself on the plea of holding no official appointment, and his long retirement from the political world, while he weakened his resolution of the subalterns by the scruples which he suggested and painted in the strongest colors. At last, to render the consternation general and complete, he quitted the capital with his whole court, however little he had to fear from its capture, and the city was lost, because by his departure he showed that he despaired of its safety. His example was followed by all the Roman Catholic nobility, the generals with their troops, the clergy, and all the officers of the crown. All night the people were employed in saving their persons and effects. The roads to Vienna were crowded with fugitives, who scarcely recovered from their consternation till they had reached the imperial city. Meridas himself, despairing of the safety of Prague, followed the rest, and led his small detachment to Tabor, where he awaited the event. Profound silence reigned in Prague when the Saxons next morning appeared before it. No preparations were made for defense, not a single shot from the walls announced an intention of resistance. On the contrary, a crowd of spectators from the town, allured by curiosity, came flocking round to behold the foreign army, and the peaceful confidence with which they advanced resembled a friendly salutation more than a hostile reception. From the concurrent reports of these people, the Saxons learned that the town had been deserted by the troops, and that the government had fled to Budweiss. This unexpected and inexplicable absence of resistance excited Arnheim's distrust the more, as the speedy approach of the Silesian succors was no secret to him, and as he knew that the Saxon army was too indifferently provided with materials for undertaking a siege, and by far too weak in numbers to attempt to take the place by storm. Apprehensive of stratagem, he redoubled his vigilance, and he continued in this conviction until Wallenstein's house-steward, whom he discovered among the crowd, confirmed to him this intelligence. The town is ours without a blow, exclaimed he in astonishment to his officers, and immediately summoned it by a trumpeter. The citizens of Prague, thus shamefully abandoned by their defenders, had long taken their resolution. All that they had to do was to secure their properties and liberties by an advantageous capitulation. No sooner was the treaty signed by the Saxon general in his master's name than the gates were opened without further opposition, and upon the 11th of November, 1631, the army made their triumphal entry. The elector soon after followed in person to receive the homage of those whom he had newly taken under his protection, for it was only in the character of protector that the three towns of Prague had surrendered to him. Their allegiance to the Austrian monarchy was not to be dissolved by the step they had taken. In proportion as the papists' apprehensions of reprisals on the part of the Protestants had been exaggerated, so was their surprise great at the moderation of the elector and the discipline of his troops. Field Marshal Arnheim plainly evinced on this occasion his respect for Wallenstein. Not content with sparing his estates on his march, he now placed guards over his palace in Prague to prevent the plunder of any of his effects. The Roman Catholics of the town were allowed the fullest liberty of conscience, and of all the churches they had wrested from the Protestants, four only were now taken back from them. From this general indulgence none were excluded but the Jesuits, who were generally considered as the authors of all past grievances, and thus banished the kingdom. John George belied not the submission and dependence 
with which the terror of the imperial name inspired him, nor did he indulge at Prague in a course of conduct which would assuredly have been pursued against himself in Dresden by imperial generals such as Tilly or Wallenstein. He carefully distinguished between the enemy with whom he was at war and the head of the empire to whom he owed obedience. He did not venture to touch the household furniture of the latter, while without scruple he appropriated and transported to Dresden the cannon of the former. He did not take up his residence in the imperial palace, but the house of Liechtenstein, too modest to use the apartments of one whom he had deprived of a kingdom. Had this trait been related of a great man and a hero, it would irresistibly excite our admiration. But the character of this prince leaves us in doubt whether this moderation ought to be ascribed to a noble self-command, or to the littleness of a weak mind, which even good fortune could not embolden, and liberty itself could not strip of its habituated fetters. The surrender of Prague, which was quickly followed by that of most of the other towns, effected a great and sudden change in Bohemia. Many of the Protestant nobility, who had hitherto been wandering about in misery, now returned to their native country, and Count Thurn, the famous author of the Bohemian Insurrection, enjoyed the triumph of returning as a conqueror to the scene of his crime and his condemnation. Over the very bridge where the heads of his adherents exposed to view held out a fearful picture of the fate which had threatened himself, he now made his triumphal entry, and to remove these ghastly objects was his first care. The exiles again took possession of their properties, without thinking of recompensing for the purchase money the present possessors, who had mostly taken to flight. Even though they had received a price for their estates, they seized on everything which had once been their own, and many had reason to rejoice at the economy of the late possessors. The lands and cattle had greatly improved in their hands. The apartments were now decorated with the most costly furniture. The cellars which had been empty were richly filled. The stables supplied, the magazines stored with provisions. But distrusting the constancy of that good fortune which had so unexpectedly smiled upon them, they hastened to get quit of these insecure possessions and convert their immovable into transferable property. The presence of the Saxons inspired all the Protestants of the kingdom with courage, and both in the country and the capital, crowds flocked to the newly opened Protestant churches. Many, whom fear alone had retained in their adherence to popery, now openly professed the new doctrine, and many of the late converts to Roman Catholicism gladly renounced a compulsory persuasion to follow their earlier conviction of their conscience. All the moderation of the new regency could not restrain the manifestation of that just displeasure which this persecuted people felt against their oppressors. They made a fearful and cruel use of their newly recovered rights, and in many parts of their kingdom, their hatred of the religion which they had been compelled to profess could be satiated only by the blood of its adherents. Meantime, the succors which the imperial generals Goetz and Tiefenbach were conducting from Silesia had entered Bohemia, where they were joined by some of Tilly's regiments from the upper Palatinate. In order to disperse them before they should receive any further reinforcement, Arnheim advanced with part of his army from Prague and made a vigorous attack on their entrenchments near Limburg on the Elbe. After a severe action, not without great loss, he drove the enemy from their fortified camp and forced them by his heavy fire to recross the Elbe and to destroy the bridge which they had built over that river. Nevertheless, the imperialists obtained the advantage in several skirmishes, 
and the Croats pushed their incursions to the very gates of Prague. Brilliant and promising as the opening of the Bohemian campaign had been, the issue by no means satisfied the expectations of Gustavus Adolphus. Instead of vigorously following up their advantages by forcing a passage to the Swedish army through the conquered country, and then with it attacking the imperial power in its center, the Saxons weakened themselves in a war of skirmishes, in which they were not always successful, while they lost a time which should have been devoted to greater undertakings. But the elector's subsequent conduct betrayed the motives which had prevented him from pushing his advantage over the emperor, and by consistent measures promoting the plans of the king of Sweden. The emperor had now lost the greater part of Bohemia, and the Saxons were advancing against Austria, while the Swedish monarch was rapidly moving to the same point through Franconia, Swabia, and Bavaria. A long war had exhausted the strength of the Austrian monarchy, wasted the country, and diminished its armies. The renown of its victories was no more, as well as the confidence inspired by constant success. Its troops had lost the obedience and discipline to which those of the Swedish monarch owned all their superiority in the field. The confederates of the emperor were disarmed, or their fidelity shaken by the danger which threatened themselves. Even Maximilian of Bavaria, Austria's most powerful ally, seemed disposed to yield to this seductive proposition of neutrality, while his suspicious alliance with France had long been a subject of apprehension to the emperor. The bishops of Würzburg and Bamberg, the elector of Mentz, and the duke of Lorraine were either expelled from their territories or threatened with immediate attack. Treves had placed itself under the protection of France. The bravery of the Hollanders gave full employment to the Spanish arms in the Netherlands, while Gustavus had driven them from the Rhine. Poland was still fettered by the truce which subsisted between that country and Sweden. The Hungarian frontier was threatened by the Transylvanian prince Ragotsky, a successor of Bethlen Gabor, and the inheritor of his restless mind, while the port was making great preparation to profit by the favorable conjunction for aggression. Most of the Protestant states, encouraged by their protector's success, were openly and actively declaring against the emperor. All the resources which had been obtained by the violent and oppressive extortions of Tilly and Wallenstein were exhausted. All those depots, magazines, and rallying points were now lost to the emperor, and the war could no longer be carried on as before at the cost of others. To complete his embarrassment, a dangerous insurrection broke out in the territory of the Enns, where the ill-timed religious zeal of the government had provoked the Protestants to resistance, and thus fanaticism lit its torch within the empire, while a foreign enemy was already on its frontier. After so long a continuance of good fortune, such brilliant victories and extensive conquests, such fruitless effusion of blood, the emperor saw himself a second time on the brink of that abyss into which he was so near falling at the commencement of his reign. If Bavaria should embrace the neutrality, if Saxony should resist the tempting offers he had held out, and France resolved to attack the Spanish power at the same time in the Netherlands, in Italy, and in Catalonia, the ruin of Austria would be complete. The Allied powers would divide its spoils, and the political system of Germany would undergo a total change. The chain of these disasters began with the Battle of Bretenfeld the unfortunate issue which plainly revealed the long-decided decline of the Austrian power, whose weakness had hitherto been concealed under the dazzling glitter of a grand name. The chief cause of the Swede's superiority in the field 
was evidently to be ascribed to the unlimited power of their leader, who concentrated in himself the whole strength of his party, and unfettered in his enterprises by any higher authority, was complete master of every favorable opportunity, could control all his means to the accomplishment of his ends, and was responsible to none but himself. But since Wallenstein's dismissal, and Tilly's defeat, the very reverse of this course was pursued by the Emperor and the League. The generals wanted authority over their troops, and liberty of acting at their discretion. The soldiers were deficient in discipline and obedience. The scattered corps in combined operation, the states in attachment to the cause, the leaders in harmony amongst themselves, in quickness to resolve, and firmness to execute. What gave the emperor's enemy so decided an advantage over him was not so much their superior power as their manner of using it. The League and the Emperor did not want means, but a mind capable of directing them with energy and effort. Even had Count Tilly not lost his old renown, distrust of Bavaria would not allow the Emperor to place the fate of Austria in the hands of one who had never concealed his attachment to the Bavarian elector. The urgent want which Ferdinand felt was for a general possessed of sufficient experience to form and to command an army, and willing at the same time to dedicate his services with blind devotion to the Austrian monarchy. This choice now occupied the attention of the Emperor's Privy Council, and divided the opinion of its members. In order to oppose one monarch to another, and by the presence of their sovereign to animate the courage of the troops, Ferdinand, in the ardor of the moment, had offered himself to be the leader of his army, but little trouble was required to overturn a resolution which was the offspring of despair alone, and which yielded at once to calm reflection. But the situation which his dignity and the duties of administration prevented the emperor from holding, might be filled by his son, a youth of talents and bravery, and of whom the subjects of Austria had already formed great expectations. Called by his birth to the defense of a monarchy, of whose crowns he wore two already, Ferdinand III, King of Hungary and Bohemia, united, with the natural dignity of heir to the throne, the respect of the army, and the attachment of the people, whose cooperation was indispensable to him in the conduct of the war. None but the beloved heir to the crown could venture to impose new burdens on a people already severely oppressed. His personal presence with the army could alone suppress the pernicious jealousies of the several leaders, and by the influence of his name, restore the neglected discipline of the troops to its former rigor. If so young a leader was devoid of the maturity of judgment, prudence, and military experience which practice alone could impart, this deficiency might be supplied by a judicious choice of counselors and assistants, who under the cover of his name might be vested with supreme authority. But plausible as were the arguments with which a part of the ministry supported this plan, it was met by difficulties not less serious, arising from the distrust, perhaps even the jealousy of the emperor and also from the desperate state of affairs. How dangerous was it to entrust the fate of the monarchy to a youth who was himself in need of counsel and support? How hazardous to oppose to the greatest general of his age a tyro, whose fitness for so important a post had never yet been tested by experience, whose name, as yet unknown to fame, was far too powerless to inspire a dispirited army with the assurance of future victory. What a new burden on the country, to support the state a royal leader was required to maintain, and which the prejudices of the age considered as inseparable from his presence with the army. 
how serious a consideration for the prince himself, to commence his political career with an office which must make him the scourge of his people and the oppressor of the territories which he was hereafter to rule. But not only was a general to be found for the army, an army must also be found for the general. Since the compulsory resignation of Wallenstein, the emperor had defended himself more by the assistance of Bavaria and the League than by his own armies, and it was on this dependence on equivocal allies which he was endeavoring to escape by the appointment of a general of his own. But what possibility was there of raising an army out of nothing without the all-powerful aid of gold and the inspiring name of a victorious commander? Above all, an army which, by its discipline, warlike spirit, and activity, could be fit to cope with the experienced troops of the northern conqueror. In all Europe there was but one man equal to this, and that one had been mortally affronted. End of Part 3